People always ask me what type of marketing we do at the practice to see on average 165 new patients each and every month. And I always say the same thing, reviews. And more importantly, I rank high on Google. You may have heard me talk in the past about how my practice's website and Google search ranking has been the most beneficial element to my practice's growth. Well, I've been happily working with the same marketing person for the past four years, and now you can too. Relevance Online Marketing will take you from non-existence to the top of the pack using their revolutionary approach to SEO and pay-per-click advertising. No contracts, no BS, and only the results that you can take to the bank. So if you are looking for a marketing company that gives your practice the attention and care it deserves, look no further than Relevance Online Marketing. Mention Dental Practice Heroes and get your first month free, risk-free, with absolutely no obligations. Relevance Online Marketing will take your online marketing from zero to hero. Go to RelevanceOnlineMarketing.com and set up a demo today. That's RelevanceOnlineMarketing.com and gear up for some real practice growth. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another edition of DPH Clinical. I got the man from Colorado Surgical Institute, Dr. Daniel Brisky, the legend. How you doing, Daniel? <laughs> What's up, Paul? Great, great to be on, brother. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so our last episode, we talked about some complications, and, and we're just going to keep going with this. We're going to do a part two here, and we're going to start by talking about that nasty little serpent that lives inside the mandible. He wasn't there in your type of dance. Did, did you ever have to extract a tooth on a type of dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? I was wondering if like people actually do that. That just like, how was that experience for you? Was that? Well, was it, it seemed very that, pointless. Very, very pointless. You're like, I'm a surgeon. Look at me. Yeah. What I did was I snapped half of it off, and then I just referred it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just unscrew and throw it down the, throw it down the clinic. Get this thing yep. out of here. <laughs> yeah. Who wants Here's your it? referral. Give me another one. So let's talk about that IAN, man, like that little scary beast that lives in the jaw. Like nobody wants to mess with that thing. You see it on the x-ray and you're always like, oh, how close am I? Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. So let's talk about IAN complications and how we can prevent them. Yeah, yeah, of course. We get a lot of panels that get sent to us or CTs, just just people asking us, like, hey, would you take this out, right? Or would you recommend a serve for this tooth? And I say a vast majority of them even 80 to 90% of them, they're worried about the IAN just because it's somewhat close. And just the proximity of it shouldn't really make us scared to remove the tooth. So I really would encourage everyone that is worried to take a tooth out, um, which for a good reason, right? It makes sense why we want to do something because we definitely all cherish having a dental license, (laughs) right? But to take a CT, right? Taking a CT and looking for just Typical radiographic clues to the IAN proximity, just very, very important to see. Things like darkening of the roots or deflection of the IAN or narrowing of the IAN, right? All those things are definitely concerning. But if you pull up a CT and you actually take that slice and you start looking through it, a vast majority of these, when they're actually close, they're actually pretty far away. They usually either buckle or lingual to the tooth. And they're not really coming anywhere closer to than one two, three millimeters away from it. So just because the pano says it doesn't mean the CT does. So take a CT first and check for it. As I say, I remember doing an extraction course with Dr. Tommy Murph in Costa Rica. We would take a PA and you would see this IAN like overlaying the roots a lot of time. And you'd say, Tommy, hey, Tommy Murph, is this close? He's like, what do you think? And I'm like, I think it is. It ain't. Do it. Do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't matter where it was. It could be like, 
the roots could be wrapped around the nerve and he'd be like, it ain't there. Do it. Do it. Take it out anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know how good advice that was, but that's what we did. And, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> it worked out. So Yeah. No, it's true. But typically, you know, I and let's say you have a tooth that snaps off, right? And you have just maybe the first about three to five millimeters left of the root tip. So say you take out a number 32, it's really deep down there. You're right on top of the nerve. And we looked at the CT and it shows maybe a couple tenths of millimeters away from the IN. You don't have to, you know, you can leave a small root tip behind. You know, if it's three to three millimeters is usually the most amount that you'd want to leave it in there. But if the root tips are... Very, very close to IN, right? And let's say you have a number 32 and there's maybe a couple tenths of millimeters of bone around the root tip. Then at that point, if the tooth is about, I'd say, three to five millimeters long and it's just a little root tip left, don't feel bad about leaving it in there. It's perfectly okay. Where I definitely don't ever advocate for leaving root tips in there, right? Because for the majority of teeth, uh, you know, 99% of teeth, that root tip needs to come out. What happens when you leave the root tip? If you leave the root tip in there, and typically this is on ones where it's like it's locked in there, right? It's not really moving for it. It's not moving. The risk of getting an infection post-op is very minimal because when you do coronectomies, right? Coronectomies where you just lop off the top of the tooth, including all the enamel, and it just heals over. But what happens a lot of time is if you start to elevate that tooth, now you're introducing inflammation which will cause that tooth to possibly become infected. So if you're going to be elevating it and it's very loose, you have to take it out. So if that root tip is, is in there and it's moving around, right, you definitely need to figure out a way to get it out of there. You got to get something on it to get it out. But if that thing is pretty rock solid, you're like, man, this thing isn't moving. I'm like, well, I'm going to move to the next operatory then. <laughs> <laughs> does the root tip ever continue to erupt? It does. It does. You'll see root tips move coronally, and you'll even see an entire tooth move coronally with coronectomies as the years go on. I'd like to hear what verbiage you're using for a patient to let them know you're leaving a root tip. (laughs) Ooh, I usually pull up the CT, and then I'll show, because there's always a reason why, right? If you can't justify the reason why you're leaving something behind, at that point, you should definitely refer it, because it's very, very hard to BS something, right? So if you have a wisdom tooth, and this is typically when someone's sedated and you wake them up and the next next day you actually see them as a postdoc, right? At that point, I pull up the CT, I actually go through the CT slice with them and I show them how thin their lingual bone was and I show them how thin the bone was in terms of the nerve. And I say, hey, I didn't take this small piece of root tip out because if I did do that, you could have tingliness on the side of your lip for the rest of your life. And I say, aren't you happy that I didn't take that out? <laughs> well, sure, I'm happy I ain't got tingling, but how much percentage of the tooth did you leave? <laughs> 99% is out. The other 1%, you basically asked them to thank you for leaving it in there. <laughs> <laughs> Just a pain in the ass patients. I mean, I'm sure, somebody wanted to ask you that if you left a root tip? I'll get some money back. Yeah, they always yeah, do. Yeah, right? No, no one's ever said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they have a southern accent when they're when I talk to jerk patients. They they have a southern accent. What is that? Some like inherently bias that I have. I don't understand. Yeah, I understand. You left the whole tooth in there. Got it. Yeah. Well, well, I know we're talking about the IN and leaving like a little root tip. What about like I don't want to switch gears too much because I want to keep on talking about this IN when we talk about nerve stuff. But 
What about that little tiny root tip, that little tip of the palatal root? You don't want to shove that thing in the sinus because it might go in and never come back out. Yep. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's so true. So maxillary teeth, honestly, I have actually never dislodged a piece of tooth into the sinus before. I've, I've done it. Yeah, I'd say pretty much everyone has, right? I've just gotten very lucky so far and I'll probably do it next week now that I said that. Because it's just typically how things happen in life. I want my money back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the reason why most people send that tooth up into the sinus is because you can't see it very well. There's blood, there's saliva. We just broke the tooth off. We're worried because it is close to the sinus. But then you couple that with not being able to see very well. That's like your recipe for disaster. So... If you have a good elevator, um, let's say a, I use a luxating elevator. A luxating elevator is a very sharp tip on it. And with those, you can move in a circumferential motion in a circle. And you just take that tip and you basically spin it around the tooth. And I have always been able to get every single root tip out by using a sharp luxating elevator. Um, I use a three millimeter one and you just work it in a circle all the way circumferentially around the tooth and it loosens it up. And I'm not saying like press really hard, right? But if you have a good Luxang elevator, which good ones are decently sharp, not ones that some of the DSOs supply that are about as sharp as your pinky finger, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you definitely need to have one that, that is somewhat sharp. But if you work it around, you can 100% get it loose. But when people pop it through, it's because too much apical pressure, not enough sharp instrument, and you can't see it because there's so much blood. Yeah, when I pushed mine in the sinus, it was, I was pushing hard. Yep, and on top of it, right? Because we always push it and it goes in on top of it. We were like on top of the reel a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then it, we push on it, but we're not really using the instrument how it's supposed to be used because we're pressing on the root. We're not pressing on the bone or pressing between the bone and root, right? Now, if all your elevators say Stanley on them, should you find a new associateship? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, slide it across your finger. If you can't like inflict some sum of damage on your finger, you should probably leave that associationship. <laughs> yeah. So you know, sometimes we take out teeth, and sometimes people are numb. Yeah. What, what do we tell the patient, and and what can we do? Because I think that's a question a lot of people have: is like, hey, I have this patient, and you know, I didn't think I did anything to nerve, but they're numb. What do I do? Is there something to do? Should I refer it? Like, like what is the proper course of action given the circumstances right now? Yep. Good question. Now, this is going to happen within the first seven days, usually around 1% to 5%. So it's very small, right? 1% to 5% is a very small amount of time. Now, in terms of like persistent involvement for the eye and damage, it's actually about 0.9% as, as low of zero. So it's actually very, very small as well. So if I have one of those two categories, right, where you get some eye involvement or persistent eye involvement, which is, right, then at that point, that's when I'm going to be prescribing a medrol dose pack. I'll typically prescribe a little bit higher steroids. Usually I prescribe just four milligrams of Decadron for starting the day before for the first four days after, and that helps a lot. But when I get an eye involvement, I do a medrol dose pack because the dosage is higher. I do that just for increased amount of steroids. I don't typically involve, do a ton of steroid dosage because it does have a little bit more complications on their systemic health a little bit, or like, like not being able to sleep at night, insomnia, all those things are definitely real. So medrol dose pack for everyone. And then when I get that incidence of eye involvement within the one to seven days, that's when I do um, Decadron. 
at that point, I go, are you just talking about it like it's nothing? I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, that happens. Don't don't even sweat it. Don't even think twice about it, because if you get nervous, the patient instantly knows that you're nervous. You have to have like a stone face. And I remember in soccer, they, my nickname was like stone face killer. I was a, <laughs> all throughout high school and college, because I would not show emotion at all. I would not show any emotion whatsoever. But that's what you have to do with your patients sometimes, right? You can't be too empathetic. If you're too empathetic, you talk too much. And then your patient gets alarmed. So just straightforward, tell them, hey, don't worry about it. This happens to 5% of people. And 99.9% of the time, it resolves itself. When do you say it resolves, like time frame wise? I tell them it will resolve within the first four weeks, I say. I've always said six months, but I, that's just kind of a number I always said. Yep. And that's usually the product for persistent infections. That is the number, actually. So within the first six months, only 0.9% of them all the way to zero, still have some sort of IA involvement. So I think the mean value for all those studies ever that have ever been done were like 0.3%, right? So 99.97% of them are are good. They resolve within 6%. They resolve within the first six months. When is a referral to the oral surgeon appropriate? Great question. So first, right, we do immediate steroid regimen, right, dose pack and reassurance. At that point, if they come back, I usually do a two-week two week post-op for them, and they come back and it's still numb. At that point, that's when you do a mapping of the IAN. So at that point, that's when I actually would recommend a referral at that point. So we're usually about two to three weeks out from the actual nerve injury. When you're mapping it, all you're, all you're really doing, I mean, you don't have to map it if you don't want to you but i would write something in your note in terms of what the you know the areas extending from let's say the first premolar to the lateral incisor like have something something like that just something good enough or from the lip down to the chin things like that write that in your note but then at that point i would definitely refer it because what you don't want to do is get caught not referring it that's when that's when things go south because recovery can take up to 12 months and improvements if you have improvements that means that paresthesia is only temporary, right? Like it will come back, so which is which is good. At that point, that's when I would do everything you possibly could to build a relationship with the patient, <laughs> right? So that they feel that you're there for them and that's lessens the chance of legal action. Uh, when I was just first doing a lot of wisdom teeth or implants or full arch or all these procedures, I would call every single patient myself after the surgery. And just to check out my end on them. And if you do that, they instantly know that you care about them and you will not get sued. Nowadays, we have someone else that calls for me. But in the beginning there, for those first three, four years, I was calling everyone myself because if they love you, they won't sue you. Yeah. And, and I always think like the most, the majority of people that get sued, it's because of how it was handled after stuff went wrong. Yep. It's, it's, I've had a number of things happen in my career where upset patients and we, we dealt with it. And, and with honest caring and, and honest empathy and, and like, you know, take care of the person because you, you do want to take care of your patients. But it's when we, we stick to our guns and we get defensive and we uh, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, I, I love how you say that. Develop a relationship and just take care. Just just take care of the person. Yeah, just be a good person, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Now, one thing that you mentioned, and I want to kind of circle back, is you talked about when we're pushing a root tip into the sinus, and we don't specifically have to talk about that, but you mentioned it's when we can't really see what we're doing. There's lots of bleeding. 
And I've had a number of tough extractions where I've been dinking around with a root forever. And then it's, it's just, just, there's blood everywhere. And it's hard to see. And then once we finally get a clot and it's like, you can see it. Like sometimes you stop, you take an x-ray and you come back and you're like, oh. And as soon as you can see what you're doing, it's like, oh, here we go right here. Boom, boom, boom. We're all out. And what kind of recommendations would you have? That Is there anything that we can do to kind of get our, our visual a little better? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's usually just anesthesia, anesthetic at that point. So what I'll do, let's say it's a maxillary tooth. Let's say it's 14. At that point, I'll grab a carpule of 1 to 50, which is the, gr- the green carpule. And then I'll do maybe like a, a half a carp on the lingual on the lingual palatal tissue, not where the papilla is, but like pretty deep down there. And you're blanching the tissue till that entire palate portion turns white. And then I'll add about the other half carp on the buckle side. At that point, it honestly dries it up uh, unless there's a big systemic reason why there, why it isn't. But I found that 90% of the time, just a little bit of anesthetic like that is great. And then also rinsing the area out. Cause after you're working for a while, you get some blood that kind of like, even if it's, clotting it sticks to the tooth and the bone around it so i'll rinse it out another good reason to use uh, stella life it actually has a little bit of help in terms of visualizing the bone after so if you use stella life and you're squirting the bone around it you can actually see a little bit better it stops a little bit of the bleeding so pressure and anesthetic 1 to 50 and then rinsing the area so you can cleanly see it what about on the lower are we still infiltrating does that still work with the 1 to 50 Yep, still works. Yep, lower. Um, 1 to 50 works great. I do find myself needing to reflect the lower a little bit more by just an envelope flap and removing the tissue from the parasteum and the bone and just making an envelope flap so you can see down there better. Now, when you're in a tough extraction, like a strategy I always often employ is I, I start to get take anger out on my assistant. Do you think that's an effective way to get a tooth out? <laughs> 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 definitely not because the next one won't work for, won't want to work for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We hear so many horror stories, even from patients, right. Or assistants. When you hire someone new, they say, Oh, my last doctor threw an instrument because he was getting so angry. Right. Man, you cannot let patients know that you're angry. Like you can't make them let them sweat. Cause it's always gotta be, you gotta win over the tooth. It can't be the tooth beats you. Right. One of my assistants, she's been with me almost 10 years now. And she always brings up the story about when we were having trouble with the lower wisdom tooth. And <laughs> I, said, I said something nasty. And uh, those words will live on long after I'm gone because she will never mm. forget. It, you know? So but. one thing to remember with sedations, this happened to one of my friends. There was a patient who did sedation with the sleep but she left her phone on and was recording the entire visit. Crazy, right? So people actually do this. So anyone that does sedation, make a strict rule of like no phones in the room. Like no phones at all can even enter the room. Because you don't know who's secretly recording you. Because I definitely have a potty mouth when patients are fully asleep, right? Because you want to move really fast. You're like, man, I'm going to get this arch done in an hour, right? And you're going like 10 minutes over and you're just swearing like a, like a sailor. Right? You definitely don't <laughs> want that patient hearing you swear later on. <laughs> wow. I never even thought about that even being a possibility. Crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I do sedation, it's just oral conscious and half the time they're, I'm not talking about nasty stuff. I'll just share that because I'm sure that everyone's wondering, what did I say to my assistant? 
So I asked her for a periosteal elevator, and she said, I don't know what that is. And I whispered in the ear, you've been here over a year. How the f*** do you not know what a periosteal elevator is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said it quietly, and I said it in the hallway, but... Uh, yeah, that was uh, after the patient we got done. There were some apologies in order, and a little, a little, <laughs> my tail was between my legs. But <laughs> get frustrated. Did you, have to, did you have to buy her a gift as an apology gift at all? <laughs> I bought her a set of periosteal elevators. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you already had. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> I did not. I don't remember what happened. We made up though. I've always been really good with making up with my assistants whenever I'd be a jerk, you know. And it, no, it's I, always a, and it's always, I always tell them like it's a during attraction. And I always say, like, I know it's not the truth, but my brain literally thinks if you could just suction this a little better and I could see, I would have this out in a second. Like, it's like this, it's like this carnal, like primal, like, let's blame somebody else. Like, I can't get this tooth out. You know, it's such a weird thing. And then, but they know, I always just tell them when I'm, when I'm frustrated and you can sense it, it just, it's just my body is in panic mode and I just need some help right now. hundred percent. And it's always like the visualization of the suction, right? I don't know how many times you have like a new assistant and you grab the suction from them and you yeah. try to be nice when you grab it. But anytime you grab the suction, it comes off as hard. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you grab it and you suction yourself and you look into it right? and you hand it back to them. Right. They know you're pissed off at that point, but you know, what, do you, what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. You gotta, I gotta, I gotta see. I got yeah, to see. see. I yeah. want to see right now. <laughs> it's funny, man. All right. Well, that's about time for now, but yeah. So any last words you want to give on, you know, bleeding, IN involvement, anything you want to kind of before we wrap this up? I'd say just like proper prescriptions is a big thing, right? So my common prescriptions are going to be like Paradex, ibuprofen, ibuprofen starting the night before, Decadron, we do four milligram tablets, we prescribe five of them. We have them start the day before with the first tab and up to four days later. Typically with patients over the age of 25, especially with wisdom teeth, or with bone grafting, all those things, we definitely are prescribing moxicillin because at that point that does decrease or adds the prophylactic antibiotics for a dry socket. That's one big one. Alternatives, right? Z-Pack or Keflex. Then for pain meds, I don't always prescribe pain meds. I, I, I'm also not a, I don't try to keep my patients away from them, <laughs> right? Like I still believe they have a purpose. And so I think some people will definitely argue with me on that. So I'll do, typically do like a tramadol. Tramadol, I feel like is a very good, medication it's not like a narco make you feel you woozy i was actually given tramadol when i had an achilles surgery last year i had to prescribe it for myself because my doctor would only give me norco or oxy which is crazy what our listeners can use too like Exparol, right it is a single use vial it costs about i think it's about 300 bucks for the big thing it's a non-opioid injectable suspension um you can locally infiltrate it you don't do it as blocks you just do local infiltration so it's marketed for about 72 hours. It's predictable for usually around 24 hours because it's time-released injection is what has how it works. We recommend that for lower wisdom teeth sites for 17 and 32 or for lower, or you can even do that for uh, full arch patients for the lower arch too. It just reduces the need for opioids post-op, right? That's the whole reason why we use those things. So less oxys and drips for our patients. Nice, nice. All right. Well, if anyone wants more information on Colorado Surgical Institute, check out coloradosurgicalinstitute.com. Anything you want to add before we cut out here, Brisky? No, no. I think that's about all. I think we have like two spots left for our March course, but it covers wisdom teeth. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for your time today, Dan. Thank you for the listeners for listening in, and we'll talk to you next time. 
Hey everybody, this is Dr. Doon from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries, we have lateral sinus lifts, we have block grafting courses, all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are gonna be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.